Well, good morning. Welcome to Resonate. Uh, we are in a series called Broken Color right now. Um, but it's July 4th weekend, and I didn't know what to expect. I didn't even know any of you would be here. Um, so I, I got a little riskier. Uh, in a grand American tradition of going rogue on Independence Day, I'm going rogue from the series. So this morning, instead of talking about uh, the lectionary and weaving in all parts of scripture, uh, I want to talk about story, and I want to talk about pirates. And literally, I'm going to spend a large chunk of this morning talking about pirates, Peter Pan, uh, and, and all of that stuff. And somehow we're going to weave that all back into Jesus. Are you with me? Um, it's going to be fun. Uh, so let's start off right here. Um, the 4th of July is actually a fascinating holiday to me because it's a lie. So the 4th of July is in no way the day that we should have actually declared independence because that's not the day we actually won. In fact, that happened seven years later from 4th of July. So when we celebrate this holiday, we're like, independence, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is literally the only thing that happened on the 4th of July is that we wrote it down. So we just said, I think it would be a good, good idea to be free. In fact, the voting for this happened two days earlier on July 2nd. Congress secretly voted uh, for independence July 2nd. We don't celebrate that. And then on July 8th was the first time that this was ever even read out loud. And we all have been taught this narrative of like, you see the founding fathers and they've got the giant feather pen and they're all signing it together. Uh, that didn't happen either. They all signed it separately and almost a month later on August 3rd, almost a month later, and we didn't actually win the War of Independence until 1783. This is 1776 that we celebrate, but we didn't actually gain independence until 1783. So why do we celebrate on July 4th? It's always fascinating me. And I think the reason it fascinates me is because we're celebrating the day that we wrote it down. We're celebrating the idea of freedom before it costed us everything. We're celebrating the risk and the fact that we're going to enter into this war for independence and we're going to fight for what we believe in and most likely lose our lives. We're fighting against an empire here and the day that we celebrate is the day that we wrote it down. And what's fascinating to me about that is that that's not necessarily wrong, right? The reason we celebrate on the 4th is to show that there are layers to the story. We begin asking questions like, why the 4th? What's the deal with the fourth? And then we find out that there was stuff on the second and there was stuff on the eighth. When, when something like this happens, it shows us that there are layers to the story and that the story is more rich than just a bunch of men in a room with a quill pen signing something. That the story has weight to it. That it is fully alive and real. It's richness. We begin to see that all of these different stories, all of these different angles, because like honestly, we call it Independence Day. Think of what they call it in England, right? This is Mutiny Day, right? This is not the Independence Day. We view it as independence, they view it as mutiny. There are all sort of different ways to see things. There are so many angles to see things. It's no wonder the scriptures are so beautiful, so awesome, so confusing, so frustrating, so contradictory. They're all like that because we're all like that. Right? You are not just a single story. You are a bunch of stories all weaved together. The church is not just a single story. It's not just you. It's all of us weaved together. It's voices in a choir. It's strands coming together to form a single thread. So what I want to talk about this morning is the richness of a story and how there are multiple ways to view a story and that that's okay. Because I think we are polarized right now in this country about black and white issues, about who's right, who's wrong. We can't even enter into discussions, mostly we just enter into arguments, and the real tragedy is that we enter into arguments over the form of a keyboard, 
right? We're not even having these discussions face to face. But I think if we can get to know story, if we can get to know our story and the fact that our story is interweaved with everyone else's story, then we can start to see that we can have discussions, that they can be civil, and that actually we're biblically called to be people that reconcile with each other. And that's a fancy word, reconcile, but basically that means we're called to have these different sorts of conversations. So to show how there's a bunch of ways to view a single story, I want to start with uh, like the original Independence Day, the OG, uh, which is the call of Abraham being called out. This is how this begins. This is in Genesis. Um, put that first slide there, Sean. Beautiful. The Lord had said to Abram, he's called Abram at this point because he hadn't been given his full title, uh, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, here's the most important part of this whole passage, and it's right here on the side. It says, so Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and I've got to scoot back here, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out for Haran. There's a couple interesting things here right off the bat. We have this character called Abram, and then we have this other character who's speaking to him that we'll just call that God. But the really, really fascinating part of this scripture is that right before this, we have a genealogy, which if you're reading the Bible and you encounter a genealogy, you might as well have just encountered like chloroform. It's going to put you to sleep, right? Like it's just names, and they're Hebrew names, and they're long, and they're confusing, and there's often long lists. But what those are designed to do is kind of catch us up to give us a scope of how many generations we've just passed through, how much time has passed. And what the, what's really fascinating is that there's no account in the middle of that genealogy that indicates that anybody was talking to God or listening to God. In fact, Abraham is the first person in the Bible, in Genesis, that answers a call from God to get up and leave. So here's the most fascinating part of this whole passage. There is no moment where Abraham goes, who said that, right? If you, did, if you hear a divine call that says, I want you to get up and leave, and you're 75 years old, and you're pretty grounded, there's going to be a moment where you go, who said that? Who's talking to me? There's no who said that moment in the Abraham story. So this led the ancient readers of the text and the ancient interpreters of the text to all sorts of crazy conclusions because they couldn't figure out, why would a 75-year-old man who is grounded and has a family and has land pick up everything and go just because he heard God's voice? And how would he possibly be able to recognize God's voice? That's just an inkling. That could be just like you ate something weird for breakfast that day. How do you know that that's God? How did he recognize God? And then that conversation leads into all sorts of other interesting things like how does anybody know God? How do, how do we as people, how do we recognize God for the first time without being told without being taught the right rules and the right ways to go. How does God present himself? And so an old rabbi named Akiva told a story like this to try and explain how people, or how Abraham specifically, would recognize a God when he'd never encountered one before. And he tells it like this. He said, Abraham could be, uh, could be akin to a traveler who's on the road, going to a destination, and along the road, he encounters this grand, beautiful palace and he notices that it is extremely up in flames. It is on fire. And the traveler looks at this gorgeous palace and he says, who is the caretaker for this property? 
Surely, is there any owner, is anyone watching this? Am I the only one seeing that this house, this palace, this gorgeous palace is up in flames? And just then, a man pops his head out the door and says, I'm the owner of this place. Now, that's a very confusing story, but let's pull back just a little bit. The same word that they would use for up in flames is a fancy Hebrew word called dolaket, and I know that I'm pronouncing that like a total white boy, but dolaket is the word, and that word can mean both up in flames and full of light. Up in flames, full of light. So when Abram encounters this palace for the very first time, he looks at it and he says, it's on fire, who could be the caretaker for this place? Or he says, look at this brilliant palace full of light. Who could be the caretaker for this place? We can find God in the flames, and we can find God in the brilliant light. It's all a matter of which way we choose to see the story. And often, we don't get the luxury of choosing which way to see. Our life circumstances and who we are and where we are kind of dictate how we see the palace. And the palace could be the whole world. So Abram could look at the whole world and see all the atrocities and all the evil going on in his land and go, surely this place must have a caretaker. And then God presents himself to Abraham. And he understands, oh, there's something richer behind that. That could mean the world. And here, we're going to twist it again. So here's another way of looking at that story. The palace could be the world, but it could also be the soul. So Abraham comes upon this, and he's on the road, and he says, this soul is on fire is there not a caretaker for my soul? And that's when God comes. Roll with me on this, because this is going to get real heady for one second, then we're going to talk about Peter Pan. It's going to be fine. But what happens in the human journey, in the journey of the soul, is that often you need to light a fire to start it, right? So we'll first see the fire, but there's got to be some sort of light to start that fire. And then what does a fire do once it's lit? It creates light. So I created a very fancy post-it note to show our whole trajectory this morning, which is this. Um, and it's completely cut off. Uh, light, fire, half light, no, light. Light, fire, light. So when Abraham encounters this palace and it's on fire and he says, who's the caretaker for my soul? And God reveals himself, there's redemption there. And now a soul is redeemed and we're back to viewing this soul like a, it's shining brilliantly and full of light. So we often start with light, we get to fire, and then we return back to brilliant amounts of light. And we'll see this in all sorts of stories, but the, every single story that we have, that we can tell, there is always a way to tell it, like the palace is up in flames, or there's always a way to tell it, like it's shining brilliantly like never before. And often those are cyclical things. So let's look at a story um, that should be fire and light and two sides of that story. And to do that, it's going to be so much fun. Uh, we're going to talk about pirates. But before we talk about pirates, I haven't prayed yet, and I need God's help. So let's pray together um, that this goes well. Let's pray. God, um, thank you for the opportunity to just have fun on a, on a July 4th weekend celebration and, uh, and the fact that uh, your word is so beautiful and full of light, even though we can look at this world and say it's up in flames, that we have a hope and that we place that hope in you. Amen. All right. So pirates. Uh, so there's a fire way 
of telling the story. There's a dark, sinister way of telling the story of pirates, right? Where pirates are just these like ridiculous human beings, and they're move the picture of the pirate. Beautiful. These guys, right? We have pirate flags. We've got peg legs. Uh, they're drunken, murderous like people, and and that's the fire version of telling the story. But actually. There's a different way of telling the pirate story, which I think is beautiful and fascinating and we could use a whole lot more of in the religion that we currently sit in. Um, I'm pulling a lot from two different books. One is Be More Pirate, and I can't remember the, the author's name on that one, but then also Kester Bruin wrote a book called Mutiny as uh, Pirates Relate to Religion. So, this will be fun. That's the fire version of telling that story, but then there's a light version. And the light version is this. We don't often focus on the economic and political reasons that piracy existed in these days. From the 1600s to the 1800s, you've got yourself the golden age of piracy. Because this was the golden age of naval fleets and ships and all of these different countries were competing against each other. And to compete against each other, they had to create strong navies. And to do that, they had to build a lot of boats. And to run those boats, they then had to have a lot of sailors, like a ton of sailors. and to thwart the other countries, what would they do? They would send their royal navies out to intercept other ships, and they would raid those ships, and they would plunder those ships, and then this is how they would train their army to operate. But here's the deal. Who would want to go on sea for months at a time and fight like this? Not a lot of people, right? So what they had to do is get creative, especially England. This is like why we had to do this whole revolution thing. They figured out that no one's going to sign up for this, so we need to force people into this. So this would literally happen. It was called being press ganged. If you were a man and you were walking down the street, just strolling down, maybe you're on your way to lunch, maybe you're on your way home, you could be instantly marauded by a group of naval officers who could just take you and take you for up to years at sea. They wouldn't tell your family, your family would have no idea what happened to you, and you would just be forced to be a naval officer on board one of these ships. And the job was grueling. Months at a time, you'd be out at sea, you, you didn't eat well. In fact, the officers who ran everything were feasting like kings, and they were getting paid unbelievable amounts of money from the government to do this, and unbelievable amounts of cuts of the plunder that they're bringing back. But the people who are actually doing the work were in quarters that were akin to jail cells. They were malnutrition, they were eating soiled food. There weren't bathrooms on these ships. It was a disgusting, awful place to be. And if you hurt yourself, like you got injured in a raid and you lost a limb or an arm or something like that, you would pretty much be left for dead or you'd be marooned on some island. So if you're in this position, what are you thinking? Mutiny, right? Because if I don't, do this, if we don't rise up and take this ship, I'm just going to die of malnutrition or a limb or something else. I might as well be dead, so I might as well live this quote-unquote pirate life. And this is actually how most of the pirates emerged, from being naval officers who were being put through hell and back, and all of a sudden they realized if we just take this over, we can actually live a better life. And get this, they weren't doing anything that the government wasn't already doing, and they weren't doing anything the government hadn't already taught them to do. Theft at sea. But to do this, they actually created a system that was way more fair than the British government, and it would look like this. Do we have the slide, Sean, of, um, of those five different things? Should be just text. Beautiful. Okay, here are four ways that I think pirates got it right and are still way ahead of their time and still way ahead of our time. First is fair pay. Now, 
Did you know that the average CEO in this country makes over, like the ratio of wealth income from the highest, the CEO to the lowest paid worker is 362 to one. 362 times the amount of money made at the top than at the bottom, right? And in a pirate's world, they were, they were on board enough and smart enough to go, that's not fair. So even the captain said, no, that's not fair. I'll take four shares to every one share that you get. So the ratio of piracy and the, the booty that they would claim would be four to one. That's amazing for that time. Sounds unfair at first, but compared to our ratios today, that's crazy. The second is voting rights. So they would literally, uh, every single person aboard, person of color, white person, uh, male and female, because there were female pirates, everybody got a vote, everybody. That didn't happen in, in London at that time. That didn't happen in England at that time. We were years and years and years away from that happening in America at that time. Everyone had a vote. And then the third was care. So back to that limb thing. In the Navy, you lost a limb. You were marooned on an island. You were left for dead. The whole peg leg eye patch thing that we see in cartoon pirates isn't actually all wrong. What happened is if they would get, lose a limb or an eye or something like that, there was an actual payout for the severity of your, uh, of your injury. And what that looked like is that literally if you lost a limb, which we consider the biggest thing that could happen, and the surgeon fixed you up, they would pay you 800 pieces of eight, which is a great pirate phrase. 800 pieces of eight, which is akin to 30,000 US dollars today. $30,000 for a lost limb, because they said you've, you've, you've worked with us, you've worked hard, you're gonna get paid for your lost limb. And the third is freedom. So a lot of times these boats were going to West Africa and they were picking up slaves. And when a pirate ship would come across a slave ship, they would often loot that ship, but then they would go to the people who were living underneath who were going to be sold, and they would either set them free or they would let them join their cause. Now, how many of us have ever looked at pirates this way before, right? Pirates are actually a, a result of oppression. Wherever there's a blocked system, you will find pirates. Let's fast forward years and years and years later, still in England, 1960. The BBC controls every single radio station in the country. And by every single radio station, I mean three of them. <laughs> there are three radio stations, and mostly it's talk radio. Now, this is the 1960s, and rock and roll is exploding. And so this didn't fare well with the people. They wanted to hear more music. They wanted to hear more rock and roll. But in large, old British fashion, they were like, no, sir. So they couldn't have any rock and roll. So what these people did is they got on a ship and they went out into international waters just far enough away that it would be legal for them to do whatever the heck they want, and they began broadcasting back to England, and pirate radio was born. Pirate radio became such a success and such a nuisance to the British government, 15 million people at any given time were listening to pirate radio as it was going on. No one was listening to the BBC. So what did that pirate act do? That pirate act went outside the system, outside a system that was blocked and locked and a system that was never designed to change. And it then changed everything. The BBC started playing rock and roll. More stations were added. And soon broadcasting laws were added so that anybody could start their radio station as long as they went between the guidelines that the, the British government gave them. This unlocked the whole system. Think about the first time, if you're, if you're my age, that you used Napster, right? All of a sudden, Tower Records was nothing, right? You, you, you went online, you downloaded uh, illegally, I mean, felt good though, illegally, like music, and you would download that music and then you realize, oh my gosh, I remember the first time I did that. One, my computer got like sick, but like 
the first time that you felt that freedom of, oh, wow, there's a whole world out there. And so suddenly you're like, you're deep into bootlegs and, and deep into like live concert stuff that you never even knew existed. And there's a whole, this whole new world that erupted. Now, what happened? Tower Records, Borders, Barnes & Noble, all of these places that used to sell CDs and thrive off of them, all of a sudden, those don't hold the power anymore. All of a sudden, the record companies don't hold the power anymore. And Napster didn't last, but that pirate act built the way to iTunes and then built the way to Spotify and streaming services that we have right now. Look right now, I'm a big fan of MoviePass. And if you know anything about MoviePass, there's no way they're going to survive. But I love MoviePass, and what that pirate act did was free us from ticket sales forever. So now, all of a sudden, I view going to the movies totally differently, and the movie companies are going to have to catch up, and they're going to have to figure out some way to get us back into the theaters once MoviePass inevitably tanks, right? What pirate acts do is they take us out of a stuck system, a system that's never designed to change, and they move us forward. And let me just tell you, Jesus was all about this. There are so many instances of Jesus breaking the quote-unquote law to care for the human soul more than he cared for the law, to the point that they had to put him to death because of what he did. In Jesus' act on the cross, you have a freeing point. That act of piracy unlocked a block system called temple, and all of a sudden, the spirit of God, this, this beautiful spirit of God is now available to everyone just the same as I can go online and download a CD from Napster, right? This act of piracy made God available to everyone. So now that we have that view of pirates, we have to talk about this little flying devil named Peter Pan. Um, do we have that picture of Peter? There he is, the little menace. So there are two ways of viewing this story, right? There's a light version, which is Disney version, which is there's Tinkerbell, hoo-ha, hurrah, we're in London, merry time, yay. And then there's also a fire version. And this isn't hard to do. It's not reaching very far. Peter Pan is a menace, like a real menace. Here's the deal. Peter Pan is named Peter Pan because Pan is the Greek god of mischief. But Pan is also the Greek god of mischief and the same exact god that we get our picture of the devil with the hooves and the horns and all that good stuff. Pan is a creepy character, and the author literally named him like this. And he said it before on record. When they did a statue in Kensington Park of Peter Pan, they erected this statue to kind of like glorify this, this beautiful story this man had written. Uh, but they used a different child model than he had originally wanted. And when he looked at it, he said, mm, it's too nice. It fails to get at the devil in Pan, all right? So even the author is admitting that this guy is a menace. Also, in the original book, Peter Pan would kill lost boys and pirates alike. Lost boys and pirates alike. And he would kill lost boys, his crew, I would call it a cult, his crew that he would literally murder for just growing up. Right? Peter represents a system that is never designed to change. You're supposed to be young forever in Neverland. And get this, the lost boys never chose to be there. In the original book, the lost boys were, were boys that fell out of their carriage in the hospital and no one would care for them, so Peter Pan would swoop in and he would take them to Neverland. I call that kidnapping, and it's a cult, and so you have a little man with a knife flying around, he's a cult leader, modeled after the devil, this man has to be stopped. So who do we have to stop him? Pirates. So pirates come back in the fold, do we have that picture again? Yes, these dudes are not bad, they are trying to stop a menace. So, this is the fire version of this story. How do we use the fire version to get back to light? How did we go from light version Disney to fire and then the next arrow, which is light. 
what, how can we make this story shine again? And I believe the way that we can make this story shine again is the real protagonist of the story, which is not Peter Pan, the flying menacing devil. The real protagonist of the story is Wendy. Wendy is a girl on the cusp of womanhood. In the original play, Captain Hook and her father are played by the same man. So you have this structure power thing of like, I want to be an adult. But then you have parents who in the beginning of the play leave her to take care of her siblings and go out to dinner and go out to, to party somewhere. So they're not letting her grow up, but they're putting the same responsibilities of motherhood on her in a time where women's suffrage is huge. So this is all an allegory, an all amazing, beautiful symbol. She's not able to fully grow up, and yet they're, they're thrusting the responsibilities of a grown-up upon her. And even worse, Peter Pan comes in and takes her, and suddenly she has to be mother to all the lost boys, right? We find a system that is now blocked. And who better to unblock a blocked system that was never designed to change than a pirate? So the pirates come in, adult pirates in Neverland, come in, and they disrupt this system. They take Wendy. Wendy overcomes them. There's even a crocodile with a clock inside of it ticking to represent time, to represent how time comes back into the story, and you should grow up, and you should learn. And Wendy takes this whole adventure, and she takes it back home, and she learns that growing up is the only option. The true move of a pirate is always to disrupt a block system, always to proclaim no when we see injustice, when we see hurt, and really, it is the biblical tradition of the prophets, it's the biblical tradition of Jesus to proclaim something. So let's do one more story of fire and light, and this one's gonna be really fun. Let's do the prodigal son. So the prodigal son uh, is a gorgeous story, and we talked a lot about it, but I wanna, like, the light version would be redemption, salvation. Henry Nouwen wrote this gorgeous book uh, about the prodigal son uh, and Rembrandt's painting of it. If you guys had time to read that, I would highly recommend it. It just paints this gorgeous picture of redemption, right? The son. Uh, goes to his father and he wants his inheritance, which is the same way in that culture of saying, I wish you were dead. And the father says, fine, and he gives him his inheritance, and the son goes off uh, for some wild living, runs out of money, and ends up feeding pigs, and then goes, man, remember how my dad's servants got treated? At least if I go back there and I beg him for a job as a servant, maybe I can get a job, and maybe I can eat three meals a day, and maybe I can be okay, but I can never be his son again, because I basically just, like, culturally... I've left that family. If a son or a daughter were to leave the family, in that tradition, they would sit Shiva for them, which is the same thing you would do if you died. If your son was dead, you would sit Shiva, and if your son left your family and did a move like that, you would sit Shiva, as if to say, as a group, as a culture, as a family, this person is dead to us. And so he comes back home, and he's rehearsing all the way along the way, like, here's what I'm going to say to my dad, get my job back. I've got I to gotta get a job so that I can eat, so that I can be a normal human being. And before he can get words out of his mouth, his dad sees him coming, and he runs towards him, and he places a cloak around him, a ring on his finger, kills the fattened calf, and says, we're throwing a party because this son of mine was dead and now alive. And that's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful point of redemption and beauty. But there is a different way to think about this story, and I think it's very important to think about this story in this way. Think about this. There are other parables, there are other stories about God the Father. And most of those in Scripture include this father figure 
not just running after as the sun is coming back, but literally seeking after you, even though you're not even on your way back yet. So in this story, the father really does nothing. And so here's what I would like to proclaim. The fire version of the story is that this is a failed pirate mutiny. This prodigal son tried to mess things up in the family, right? And here's the other, okay, so here's the, the, the fire version. This prodigal son, this is a wealthy family. If we know anything from this story, if they have a fattened calf and they have servants and they have all this kind of stuff, they are a pretty dang wealthy family. So here's this younger brother who is not entitled to inherit any of this stuff as much as his older brother is going to be, just culturally, and he's looking at his life and he's going, this is the only life I'll have. This is a system that is never designed to change. And so he goes to his dad in an act to say, Dad, give me my inheritance, not just because I want you dead, but because I want to prove that I can go make a life for myself and that I don't have to be in the system that's never designed to change. I want to change things up big time. So he gives him his money, and he makes a lot of failures along the way. But here's the thing. The tragedy of this story, if we're going to look at it in the fire version of things, is up in flames, is that when the son comes back, this doesn't change anything about the father, about the system that was never designed to change. In fact, he's just welcomed back in, and his life is going to be just the same as it was before. There's no change in that. This act of piracy to try and mutiny, to try and get things different, to shape things up, to come back to your father a success and say, Dad, look at the life that I built for myself over here. And instead he comes back and the system never changes. And that's a really depressing way to view that story. But I think the real beauty is what Jesus does with this story after he says it. Because there's another story in the Bible of three characters, like this one has the brother, older brother and the son and God. There's another trinity that happens in our scriptures, and that's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So think of this beautiful family, wealthy, having experienced pain, and it's a system designed to never change. And now think of Jesus as that prodigal breaking out of that system to come down here. And instead of the Father not even going to look, now Jesus is put on a cross, and he doesn't just go back to heaven. He stays here. He comes back here to proclaim the good news. Suddenly, that story gets trumped. He goes further than the story of the prodigal son, and he says, no, now I'm the father running not just towards you, but I will find you. And he does so in a very interesting way. And this is where we could turn it and look at a story from an even different point of view, which is Peter as the prodigal son. Now, if you know anything about Peter, Peter's a disciple. He's kind of the most brash disciple there is, and he's kind of the slowest learner there is. Uh, there's, like a, there's a scene in Acts where he's literally, like the last command of Jesus is go and tell all nations about this, and then we go a couple chapters, which is a couple years, and then Peter walks in the home of a Gentile, and he's like, you know, I'm beginning to see that this message is for all nations. Thank you, Peter. That's years later. So he's a slow learner. He's a little brash, and when Jesus is hung up on that cross, or the night before he's hung up on that cross, Peter to protect himself, denies him three times. And that's the equivalent of like literally the prodigal son walking up to your dad and saying, I want my inheritance because I wish you were dead. To, to, to actually move away from your rabbi, to disown your teacher, was a grave, 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 grave thing then. It meant that all of the life that you poured into this is now gone. 
that all the teaching that you've learned, like you were as, as a student, as a disciple of a rabbi, you were actually supposed to look at how a rabbi would physically walk and then mimic that. That's how deep you were supposed to go into this. And so for him to say like, no, I don't know this man. I don't know this man. I don't know this man. Three times was to deny Jesus three times. So you have to imagine Peter just feeling, ugh, the weight of that. And now this Jesus, this, this, this leader is dead, and I'll never have a chance to redeem myself. I'll never have a chance to be forgiven. And he does that betrayal, that thing, and it's really weird, but the scripture mentions it twice. He does it right next to a coal fire, a coal fire. And whenever scripture mentions something more than once and it's a specific detail, hold on to it. Look it up. Because there's often something that they're trying to tell you. Like this story, this fire, this up in flames moment might come back. And it does. Because when Jesus comes back from the dead and he arrives to present himself to his disciples, he comes and he starts a coal fire on the beach and he announces his presence and Peter is the first one to jump and dive out of that boat and swim to shore. And all of a sudden, there's this really interesting moment where Jesus just redeems him three times just to say no. But look at this story. There's a fire story, the prodigal who says, no, I wish you were dead. And that fire shows up. And now that fire, interestingly enough, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, yes. And he says, feed my sheep. And they do that three times. And they're by this fire. And now this fire is cooking breakfast. They've killed the fat calf, right? They're going to feast. I don't know if you know this, but in ancient Near East societies, there was one key meal a day, and that was at the end of the day. Breakfast didn't exist. And so it's very likely that Jesus created the tradition of breakfast in that moment. Thank you, brunch. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. <laughs> this is the moment we're at a coal fire. All of a sudden, the fire starts giving us more light. All of a sudden, where he did the destruction, where he left the family farm, all of a sudden, this isn't just dad waiting for you at home. This is Jesus finding you on the beach, calling you out, coming to you, and cooking you life-sustaining breakfast. That same fire that was used to destroy is now used to bring more brilliant light. Here's the reason I told so many confusing stories today. It's not to rewrite the story. It's just to show you that for every fire story, for every burden and hurt that we have, for every moment of pain, for every moment that we feel like we just can't go on, that's where the light comes from. That's what God uses to create even more light. You know the scariest thing about a pirate is? The skull and crossbones. That bad boy right there. And the reason that that's so scary is not because that, that flag was never flown to say, hey, we're going to come kill you. When you saw that flag, what you realized, and the reason that this became their symbol, is because the pirates knew the minute I become a pirate, the minute I decide to take on this life, I have a death sentence on my head. So to wave this flag was to say, we are already dead. Nothing can stop us. And that was the scariest thing about pirate, and we all need a little bit more of that in our lives. I think we need to raise our own pirate flag and say we're not afraid and go straight into that fire to find that there's going to be light after that, that there is even more, that the story is way bigger. It goes from light to fire to even more brilliant, brilliant light. Your fire, your hurts, your trials, 
the things that you can't bear to even think about, you're supposed to use those. Those aren't in vain. God wants to use those. So may we be pirates. May we fly that flag and understand that we don't have to be afraid because we have salvation and that we have Christ and that we have a palace that's full of brilliant light. Let's pray together. God, um, thankful uh, for all the fun ways that we can uh, think about your story, think about um, the story of you. Um, may we just have a great, great time this July 4th weekend, uh, hanging with people and family and friends. Uh, and may you bring us to the table this morning, joyful uh, and triumphant. Amen.